I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. We've been doing this show for a while now, so I should know how headphones work, but Hans, I can't hear anything in these. <laughs> Are they even, they're not plugged into anything. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. I just plugged in my headphones, and it turns out that's all you need to do in order to hear through them. We have been doing this show for a while now. Thanks for noticing. It's been almost three years, which is a hell of a long time. Relatively, I mean, rocks are billions of years old, but they're also dumb. Dumb as rocks. Dumb as heck. So... I'm not only relating this back to myself and uh, not geological time, which was really honestly just a perspective thing that some very smart people like to do. And it does make sense and is very humbling, like staring out into space and trying to imagine even a tiny bit of the distances and massive empty spaces that it represents that we recognize how small and ephemeral all of this is. Like this podcast episode, if you stare out into space long enough, you're like, what is a podcast? So we've been doing this show for a while, and that gives me, you know, an opportunity to, one, talk to you about time, space, rocks, myself, and also gives us time to talk about some of the guests that we've had on the show because we've talked to them also a while ago. For some of our guests, it has been years since we've caught up. So every once in a while, we get to reconnect with them and check in. Hello, is this is this Steph? I mean, yes, it could be. It could be. Who do you want me to be? I want you to be Steph Whittle's um, wax, which I've been saying your last name wrong for since we've met. So wow, mm-hmm. okay. So that's Steph Whittle's wax. She was on episode number twelve, called "Horrible and Wonderful and Figuring It Out." It's been over two years since we did our interview, which I know that like I know how chronic grief is and also that it changes has yours changed and how is your grief different from the first time we talked yeah oh yeah it's I mean it's totally changed I mean it's so weird now that you said it, so I'm gonna start it's making me want to start crying isn't that so weird yeah no, um, I get it it's like uh um because, like, I don't do this anymore. Like, I don't cry about it all the time, um, which is one reason it's different. But it's, like, being asked that question so directly, <laughs> like, makes me remember how horrible it was when I talked to you last. I don't cry about it anymore. Right now I am. <laughs> this, this time doesn't count. Um, my grief drives me in every single thing that I do. It's, like... My entire life has changed because of my grief. When my brother died, I had a life that I was familiar with and that I was used to living. And one of the things that I found to be so difficult about moving beyond that place was that I had to redefine everything about myself because everything that was just like wasn't anymore. So I had to figure out, like, who is this new person? What do I do? What do I do now, like, being a brotherless sister? 
We're going to hear more from present day Steph at the end of the episode, because what she's doing now is so interesting and important. And it happened in part because of that episode of TTFA that she did with us. So maybe before we hear all that, we should hear that episode and get to know Steph a little better and her mom, Maureen, and her brother, Harris. So after this quick break, episode 12, Horrible and Wonderful and Figuring It Out. A quick warning that this episode contains references to drug abuse, plus some strong language. Here we go. All right. So I'm opening up Twitter, Twitter (laughs) twitter.com. I wonder what vibe I carry when I walk into a room. Lord, I hope it's chill. This is so funny and dumb. Okay. (laughs) Wow. Just learned that Kenny Loggins. (laughs) Wow. Just learned that Kenny Loggins got his name because he has a hard time remembering his Gmail password. (laughs) Wow. This is some very wild rice. (laughs) Very, very wild rice. Oh, my God. I don't know if there's anything more annoying than listen to somebody else laugh about something that is way more funny to them. Oh, but that was good. That felt good for me. That was, that was very important. I needed that. Okay. I needed that much laughter. I'm Nora McInerney, and I want to formally apologize for the fact that I can't read funny things without giggling. It is very annoying for everyone who knows me personally, and I can only imagine how grating it is if you don't know me. But those tweets I was reading, they are funny, and they were written by this guy. What's up? I'm Harris. I have my cousin Jason's truck for two more weeks. I have one testicle, whack-a-mole accident, and I'm down to clown. That is Harris Whittles playing a version of himself named Harris the Animal Control Guy in the NBC show Parks and Recreation, which also starred Amy Poehler and Rob Lowe, which was memorized by basically everybody in my household. At Parks and Rec, Harris started out as a writer and eventually became an executive producer by the time he was 30. So Harris was mega successful at his job, at a really cool job, and he had famous friends. He had everything that he had dreamed of having when he grew up. And then he died of a heroin overdose. Okay, it's really hard to talk about someone who is famous and struggled with addiction because you run the risk of sounding like an episode of an E! True Hollywood Story or a VH1 behind the music. Basically, it all tends to come across as really sensational and melodramatic and honestly just like a little insincere, and I don't want to do that because it always feels to me when I hear things like that that the message is people who have it all aren't supposed to have troubles, not when they've achieved so much, but it's not like success 
of any kind. It's not like anything at all can insulate you from just being a human. And Harris got to do work that he loved. His entire life, he was obsessed with comedy. And then he got to do it for a living. This is his friend and his fellow podcaster, Scott Ackerman. He had probably the quickest rise to professional prominence of anyone I've ever seen in the entertainment industry. It was really annoying, actually. But um, he, he was just that good at what he did. Even though there are so many headlines about heroin and opioids and that epidemic and people are dying every day from these addictions, heroin overdose still seems like the kind of thing that can't happen when you're from a nice family in Houston and your mom was a school teacher and you and your sister were theater kids and you're smart and loved and you have everything going for you. But of course that's not true. That's what happened to Harris. And it happens to other people too. No matter how nice they are or how smart they are or who their family is. Here's Harris's mother, Maureen, and his big sister, Steph. Our house growing up was was crazy. Um there were not a lot of boundaries in my home, and we were all kind of free-spirited. He was a very, very funny child, very loving child. Um, I remember in middle school walking down the hall with him, and he uh, actually held my hand, which was a huge thing in middle school. He just wasn't embarrassed, and and we had a lot of love between us, so... Um, yeah, he was uh, unique, very, very unique. Steph? That was great, Mom. Yeah, I want to add that he did used to put a toothbrush in his butt <laughs> and then draw a face on his butt. You're not going to find this on the Internet. And do scenes with the toothbrush and the, and the butt. And we thought that was fine. So that sort of <laughs> sums up what kind of house we lived in. Um, oh, my yeah. gosh. <laughs> um. Did you talk about drugs as a family? Um, a question. <laughs> you know, my kids were so, like, such self-starters that, honestly, we never really worried about that with them. That was something that just didn't come up because uh, they were good kids. And um, I come to find out maybe not so true. Yeah, we did drugs. Yeah, but... We did them together. But they just carried on as, you know, the perfect students, all that stuff. So it was, I don't know. Maybe I wish I had talked about it more. I don't know. It was just sort of this, like, fun recreational thing. And I always say, like, I turned out fine. I don't know if that was like a predictor of things to come. I don't know. And you just never know who is going to be fine with that stuff and, you know, who isn't. And I don't know, like, you know, for my family, like we have uh, we have a family history of alcoholism. So likely, you know, you probably mm-hmm. shouldn't uh, be a McInerney and get drunk because you're going to love it a little too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and see, we didn't have any of that in our family. I mean, 
I think the the bigger predictor with Harris is that he was an extremist. Yeah. And everything was done to the extreme. Food. Cigarettes. Cigarettes. Um, concerts. You know, when you would go to a restaurant with Harris, ordering was like this marathon event. He would order everything off the menu and then tell everybody that they would share it and then take like two bites and then take the rest home and leftovers mm-hmm. and then eat them at three in the morning. He would like binge on TV before you could binge on TV. I mean, I remember getting the Freaks and Geeks box set when he was, when we were in high school or whatever. And he sat down at like four o'clock in the afternoon and then we were still sitting there at six in the morning watching it all, you know? So everything was always done to the maximum. He had an addictive personality in a, in a big way. It seems like maybe it's almost that same addictive personality that made him so successful. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Harris, when, as soon as he turned 18 and could get into the comedy clubs legally, went every single Monday to do an open mic. He binged on whatever comedy content he could find, whether it was like movies or specials or, you know, whatever. And he did an internship in L.A. for a semester at the end of his college career at Comedy Central. And all of the executives would come to the intern to be like, is this funny or not funny? Like he had this comedy encyclopedia in his Mm -hmm. brain. He did. And so I think you're totally right, Nora. I think that his excessive extremist kind of personality is totally what made him successful. Harris had gone from that internship to a job at the Sarah Silverman program and then all the way to Parks and Recreation, and he was doing great. One of the shitty things of having someone die of something like heroin is people asking, um, so were there any signs? Like, basically, they're asking if you consider it your fault. And that's not what I asked his family, because it's not their fault, and because things are rarely so clear to us when we're talking about the people we love. But Maureen had started to notice a difference in her son. Everything was going great for him professionally. But something was starting to change. Harris's family was still in Houston, but it was hard not to see the difference when they would go visit him in Los Angeles. You know, we he wouldn't take us, you know, to see things in L.A., which normal people do. We would just end up literally sitting in his house watching TV and maybe going out for a meal. And this is how the weekend went. We knew at this point that he was on pills. We knew that he was struggling with it and that he was yes. on and off Suboxone and that he was going to therapy and that he was trying to kind of deal with this on his own, which is just so unbelievably naive that we thought that yes. would be something that could happen. Yes. But the crazy thing is that professionally, he was like just climbing. Yeah. It was like he was always able to compartmentalize his addiction. Highly functioning. Highly functional and and was able to be totally personable and funny and charming and the same Harris that everybody knew and loved to everyone else. Yeah. And I always rationalized it like he's so tired. Having like a a staff writing job a network television show is a great excuse for a drug addict because he was busy and he was working 18-hour days. Yeah. And so when he's around his family, he just shuts down and and we love him unconditionally. And so that's going to be fine. 
But we were in L.A. at one point and he had taken a nap and the remote control to his TV wasn't working. And I guess my dad had been using it and he woke up and like flew off the handle about it. Flipped. And was like, I had to get people out here to fix this. And what is wrong with you? I mean, just like it was so insane. I was like, Harris, he like wiped your ass when you were a baby. Like, shut up. You were being such a dick. Yeah. You know, like, what is your problem? You are such a fucking asshole. I mean, we were just screaming at each other and over the stupid stuff. But we don't relate to each other that way. And I remember after that trip, I sent him an email like about how sad I was that he was acting this way and how I missed my brother and wanted him back and that this guy sucked, you know, <laughs> I hate this guy. We this... felt the same way. And we finally just said, we're not going to go anymore if he wants to come home and, you know, unwind and see us and love us. That's great. And those times became so few. He stopped. I mean, we just stopped seeing each other. So, yeah, Harris is on pills, but he's also successful and he says it's fine. So, like, it's fine. But then three days before Stephanie's wedding, her little brother calls her to say he's not so fine. I thought he was going to tell me that he had broken up with his girlfriend. And I was really going to be pissed off about it because, like, the plane tickets, like, it it was like, Eris, you know, this is my wedding. Like, you know, we have, like, don't mess this up, you know? I have a seating chart. (laughs) Yeah. Break up with her after, you know? I was, like, so put off by that. Because he said I needed to talk to you about something and told me he was a drug addict. I just stayed really calm and I said um okay well you're gonna need to get help for that and he said you know I have all this stuff going on with parks I can't I can't deal with it right now but uh, but I but I have a handle on it and I'm gonna it's gonna be fine and yay your wedding and it's gonna be great (laughs) you know and I just hung up the phone and was just sobbing I remember like weeping into my husband's shirt and I was cooking dinner at the time, which I probably had never done again since then. I don't even... The fact that I was cooking dinner is a real miracle because that never happens. This is why I don't cook dinner. (laughs) This is why. Yeah, I have PTSD about dinner cooking. That's why. Sorry, honey. Um, So, yeah. But the other crazy thing about that was that he told me I couldn't tell anyone. And so it was a secret that I had to keep for months. Wow. Steph kept Harris's secret, which was hard because their family is really close and because Harris was her best friend and he was suffering and because secrets are hard And because, aside from just holding on to that secret, Steph got pregnant and her pregnancy was rough. And then Harris's girlfriend reaches out to Steph and she tells Steph that things are not fine. No matter what Harris is telling his sister, it's not fine. Harris is spending $4,000 a month on pills. Harris's girlfriend tells Stephanie that 
she's afraid. She's afraid Harris is going to end up dying and that Harris needs help immediately. So that perfect little ball of stress and anxiety where Steph had wrapped up Harris's secret starts to come undone. In four months, after promising her brother she'd keep his drug addiction a secret, Steph tells their parents. I remember, Mom, you were you just kind of took it in and didn't really didn't really react in an emotional way almost. It was like kind of just processing the news and my dad too, just processing. And then just very calm was like, well, we're going out there in a couple of weeks and we'll deal with it when we get there. Mm. So Harris's family, Harris's parents, they go out to LA and Harris again tells his family, yes, yes, he has a drug problem, but he is taking care of it. So Harris's family goes back to Houston and life continues on as normally as it possibly can. Steph has her baby, a little girl named Iris, and almost immediately Iris is diagnosed with hearing loss and Steph sinks into a depression. But when Harris comes home to Houston to meet his niece, he promises his sister he's going to go back to rehab as soon as he gets back to L.A. And... That helps. How did you feel when you knew he was in rehab? Like it was going to be great. We were good. We were all good about that. He sounded great. His voice changed. His voice sounded like he had been code blued. He was connected. <laughs> he was like connected again. Yeah. He just sounded like the life had been implanted back into his body. He was like a star rehab student. Yeah, he was. Harris was really good at rehab, but that first visit didn't exactly stick, and he ended up going back. And it seemed like that one went even better. His family was even more hopeful. And look, we know this story doesn't have a happy ending. I mean, it's terrible, thanks for asking, after all. But if there were a happy ending, which... Is what we all want for Harris, what we all want for anyone that we know who's struggling with addiction, it would go here. This is where we would have Harris come in and tell you all about how well he's doing now and how hopeful he is. So we're going to give that to you just for a little bit. This is Harris talking with Pete Holmes on Pete Holmes' podcast, You Made It Weird. When I get sober, I, do, I am able to look at it like, uh, okay, but this is a gift that you get to have this for even that amount of time. Right. Um, and I do feel that way now. When I have my life back and I'm not using and trying to kill myself, essentially, I do notice the beauty of the world and like... Right. But I can revel in a nice day now. Right. Um, I got out of Oregon. Now I'm doing an outpatient on top of that. Four times a week, I go for three hours more group stuff. So I'm taking it more seriously now. Um, and I'm in a good place. Okay. Enjoy that feeling while it lasts. We're going to take a little bit of a break. That trip to rehab that Harris was just talking to Pete Holmes about, that wasn't for pills. That was for heroin. 
Harris had upgraded his addiction. That Pete Holmes podcast, (laughs) he had already relapsed when that came out. Like, I was listening to that thing, and I was listening to him tell his, like, sobriety story, and I was like, I'm going to kill him. Like, I'm going to kill him. I was so mad at him. Because he was like, and I remember I was like, can you, how are you, how are you okay with the fact that you've put this out in the world and you've relapsed? Like, (laughs) he said some bogus, crazy stuff. He was like, yeah, but like, so and so many people on Twitter, like, retweeted it. So, like, it's helping people. (laughs) I was like, I fucking hate you. Like, I can't believe you. But I remember being really angry. And then he came home December before he died. He had relapsed and he was detoxing. Oh, my God. And it was like, I don't know if you've seen the Basketball Diaries, but. Uh, absolutely. It was like. I grew up in the it 90s. Was, it, was, yeah. it was way oh. worse than that. It was horrible. Will you I describe like, oh. it for the people who haven't seen the Basketball Diaries who <laughs> should he watch it? He was shaking, sweating, vomiting. Um, too cold, couldn't regulate his body temperature, couldn't sit up, um, couldn't eat anything, couldn't drink anything, couldn't talk, um, totally ravaged, totally sick, sicker than I've ever, ever, ever seen anybody in my entire life. And at that point, I was like, oh, he's sick. Like, and I love him. And I'm just going to sit here and hold his hand and I'm going to love him through it because he's been a shithead and he's been ruining my life, you know, (laughs) like he's been messing up my life and not being at Thanksgiving and not doing this and not doing this the way I want him to do it. But like, he's sick. Like, I get it now. And then I was like, okay, I just have to help him. Like, I can't make this about me and my anger. After detoxing in Houston, Harris went back to L.A. and back to rehab, and then into a sober living facility where he stayed until February. Harris had been in a sober living home and checked himself out a few days early. Um, He only wanted to stay a month in rehab, and I begged him to stay another month because I knew what his history was. That was on Tuesday night. On Wednesday, um, he, the 18th, He supposedly did a great stand-up set at a club, we heard. Uh, I sent him an email at midnight about how proud I was of him. And um, he was getting ready to move to Manhattan to film Master of None. He had gotten a big part in that show uh, as Aziz's best friend. And uh, he was very excited. He wanted to... He wanted to be an actor in the worst way, and he was getting ready to to cross that threshold. It was a big deal for Harris. And um, he wrote me back that night and said, I feel so fortunate, uh, I feel so good, and I love you, and found a great place to live in Manhattan. That email from Harris came in the late hours of February 18th. 2015. The next day was Stephanie's 34th birthday. I remember it was a beautiful day. Um, 
My mom's unzipping her purse and getting Kleenex. <laughs> <laughs> trying to be silent with that. Um, so it was a beautiful day. Hold on, I'm gonna let her. I'm gonna let her get her Kleenex. Sorry, out. sorry, sorry. Okay, go ahead, honey. Um, she. Th- this is my mom, like unwrapping candies in a theater, <laughs> yeah. like doing it for fucking two minutes. Okay, sorry. I'm just like, do it fast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like the fact that you're unwrapping it slowly, we all hear that. <laughs> just rip it off. Okay. Um. So it was a beautiful day on February 19th, and I rem- I remember that because I, I feel like tragedy always strikes on beautiful days. I, I truly do. I am alarmed by beautiful days. I was actually, I had plans to go to see um, Fifty Shades of Grey with my girlfriends. <laughs> we, <laughs> which I will tell you, I cannot even go see the second one because it brings back such horrible memories for me. I'm sure it's also because it's probably just a terrible movie. <laughs> We actually loved that movie, okay? Okay. Anyway, um, we had taken Iris to her speech therapy, and she had she aced her little speech therapy test. <laughs> and for a baby who was born with hearing loss, that was, like, a pretty miraculous occasion. And so Mike and I, my husband, we were just glowing. And I remember I was changing her diaper, and I got an L.A. phone number come up on my phone. And I pressed ignore because I was dealing with a diaper. At, and then we went we went to the movie in the afternoon. And I remember getting a, a, a an L.A. phone number on my phone. And I, I texted Harris. And I said, I got a strange number. Are you okay? And um, it rang again. And I swear to God, I just knew. I was like, oh, my God, this is happening. Like, oh, my God. And I picked up the phone, and I was just like, hello. And the woman said, is this Stephanie Whittles? I said, yes. She said, is Harris Whittles your brother? And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, wait, wait, wait. And I just remember I grabbed Iris, and I opened the door to the bathroom and I screamed for Mike to come in. This was before she told me even. I just knew. And um, he came in and grabbed her. She was screaming. And she told me. And I, I still to this day can't remember if she said he died or he's dead or I don't remember how she said that sentence. And um I just fell on the floor, also in a fetal position. The grief, <laughs> the grief position. I, I was like pounding my fist on the floor. It was, it was, I, I mean, it was just the most horrific moment. And then in the midst of that horrific moment, I realized I was going to have to tell my parents. <laughs> and then I was like, that's going to be the most horrific moment. Like, that's going to be even worse than this. And, um, I don't know. I somehow drove over there. I don't know how. And, um, when I was pulling up in the driveway, my dad was walking up from work. And 
we sat on this bench outside of the building. And um, I just remember, like, looking at him and thinking, like, we're, like, looking at each other across this line. And once I tell him, like, I'm going to, like, destroy him. And I just, I mean, I just, he is a man of very few words. <laughs> so I just remember a little, like a tear falling down his cheek. And and then I was just like really consumed with how my mom was or where she was or how she was or, I mean, and then she was like texting me pictures of her dinner. <laughs> <laughs> At dinner, this sushi place had the most beautiful presentation, and I took a picture of it, and I sent it to Stephanie. I wanted her to see this beautiful plate of sushi. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, I hope she's, like, really enjoying this, because this is it. Like this, I'm like, this is the last time she's ever going to be able to have, like, a good day. <laughs> So she texted me back and said, um, are you, are you going to go home? Are you going to go play cards? You know, what's going on? And uh, on my way home in the car, I get a text from a girlfriend. He's no longer my girlfriend, I might add, um, who said, what has he done? What has Harris done? And that was the text. And I thought, my first thought was he was in the hospital. I never, ever thought he was dead. Because you don't. You just hope. While all this was happening, something else was unfolding in Los Angeles. It turns out Harris's death wasn't just a family tragedy. It was news on gossip TV the kind of TV that Maureen's former friend had seen. TV that told family friends and total strangers about Harris's death before his own mother knew that her only son was dead. Connie and Hollywood are in mourning. Well, the comedy world mourns a tragic young loss today. Many in Hollywood's comedy world are mourning the loss of one of their own. Harris Whittles. Harris Whittles. Harris Whittles, dead at just 30 years old. A possible drug overdose is suspected as police discovered drug paraphernalia in Whittles' home. And so his business manager was calling me and, like, warning me about the shit show that was about to ensue. And I am not trying to, like, fuck this up for you any more than it already is, but but you you have to tell your mom. Like, it's, go like, it's going to be out there. And then I remember shortly after she called me, and she was, like, in this pitch that was, like, really high pitch, and she was like, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And I said, where are you? And she said, I'm in the parking garage. And I said, stay where you are. Do not move. And I ran down to the elevators. And as I was going down, she was coming up. And um, 
I came home and I, my girlfriends, you know, held me up because I was scared. And they walked me into my apartment and um, my husband looked at me and said, he did what you always thought he was going to do. I got all the way down there and she wasn't there and I ran back up and at that point my dad had told her. So what did you walk into? Them on the floor. And I remember falling on the floor in a fetal position and just screaming, I don't know how to do this. God, don't make me do this, please. That's all I can remember. I just remember the three of us sitting on the couch in just total silence for the rest of the night. And just, we were just shocked. We were just totally shocked. And as the night moved on and into the next day, the news of Harris's death was bouncing around the internet. Everywhere that his family turned, other people were remembering Harris. I mean, there was just like every blog, news piece, um, pictures of him. I mean, the Westboro Baptist Church was picketing in front of the L.A. Weekly, mm-hmm. I believe, offices. And they were like, Harris is a fag lover. Mm-hmm. Like picketing with signs of his face. Yeah. And part of it, I mean, I was sort of like, he would love this. This is, <laughs> this is sort of great. <laughs> when we went to L.A. to pack up his house, um, the night before we started to pack up for him, they had a huge tribute for him at a comedy club. And UCB. All of his people were there. You know, Amy Poehler, Aziz, everybody was there. It was huge. It was wonderful. It was sad. It was everything. And uh, Stephanie and I literally got up on Sunday morning and sat on the floor and said, I don't, we, how, how, how do you do this? We were immobile. We couldn't move. I mean, it was horrible. And the doorbell rang, and we opened the door, and there were all of his people with boxes and tape and food and everything. And they took over. They didn't leave us for a week until it was all done. And those were those people, those, those were great people. I was, like, shredding all of these things that I would find because I was worried that people were going to find them and put them online. And But one of the things that I got were his rehab journals. I didn't want you to read them. I didn't yeah. want my mom to read them because they were really upsetting. And one of the things that he had said was that he relapsed every time he got out of yeah. rehab, the day he got out. Yeah. Stephanie and I went to talk to the therapist at the uh, rehab, and he said a lot of times people who get out, like Harris, who'd been sober for probably 60 days, will take the same dose that they took before they got sober, and that will kill you. He said it's the just one more time mentality. Right. 
That's yeah. what kills a lot of people. Yeah. They think they can just, I'm just going to do it one more time. Yeah. I think his best shot would have been like going to Utah because that just seems where all the Mormons and the rehabs are and spending six full months like locked away, focusing on his sobriety and rewiring his brain. But he was so busy that that wasn't an option. He, he was so busy doing what he loved and what made him so special that he couldn't take that six months. Who can? <laughs> I mean, like, that's crazy. Truly. Like, who can leave their life for six months? Mm -hmm. So really, like, no. I don't, I don't know that something could have happened. He wanted to be sober, and he tried. But he was also doing things that he loved and that made him who he was. So I don't think he wasn't committed. I just think that it was really hard to fit sobriety into his life. I know too much to be the kind of person that says that time heals grief. I have not experienced that yet. I can only say that in my experience, time changes grief and that grief changes you and it just keeps happening and happening and happening. And I don't know that it ever stops. I need um, a lot of hugs. I'm a hugger now. I just want to hug people. <laughs> Perfect strangers. <laughs> I need that. I need that. Uh, it's my addiction now. And um, you just said you were addicted to hugs. Yeah. I just want to. <laughs> I just want to. I just want to exclamation mark that statement. I think I am. Um, yeah. And uh, get this woman into rehab. <laughs> like I kind of equate it to like, like a bomb, you know, a bomb is dropped and your house is like leveled and you're just like sitting in rubble. And like you kind of have to like you just sit there for a while. And then at some point you like realize how uncomfortable it is and you can't live like this anymore. And so you have to kind of walk away from that and you have to start, you have to rebuild a new house. Like you have to start over because you don't have what you used to have. And like in the beginning, just like I was so consumed by this, this very potent, nothing matters, we're all going to die. And then that like morphed into this, like, wait a minute, we're all going to die. Nothing matters. I can do whatever I want. Like it turned into this weird, like this flip switched around a year, I would say. And I was like, hey, you know what? I want to live because I'm going to die soon because we're all going to die soon. The world keeps spinning after every death. Our loved ones stay frozen in time, forever the age they were when they died. All of their unlived potential evaporated. And we are just left to wonder, what if? What would they be like now? What would they be doing? What would they be thinking? Every year, I watch my dead husband's friends get older, get promotions, have more children. And Harris's family is the same, except that the life Harris could have had is more publicly on display. And it's on Netflix. Master of None, the Netflix show that Harris was going to move to New York to be in, it's still filmed, with the comedian Eric Wareheim playing Harris's role. 
And like, it's, it was so weird listening to the, or watching the first season. I could hear him so clearly. Like I knew every single thing that he had written. And it's like that watching Parks too. I'm like, oh yeah, that was him. <laughs> like that, that sounds like his voice. So yeah, he had a lot more to give this world, Nora. A whole lot more. The work Harris did give the world was still being recognized after his death. Master of None was introduced to critical acclaim and to heavy rotation on my Netflix. Parks and Recreation was nominated for an Emmy. And in Houston, Maureen had this situation. They'd moved into this beautiful high-rise condo. She had reserved this entire wall. Okay, and one half of the wall was for the life that Harris's parents had lived with Steph and Harris. So childhood photos, photos of their family. And the other half of the wall was for Steph and Harris. And the expectation was that Maureen and her husband would fill that half of the wall up with photos of their children's children, their children's families. And now... Gone. Now I have a picture of me with Aziz on that wall getting an Emmy. Another humble brag. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that all changed. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah. I mean, but it's also like all of these things... They all exist at the same time. Like, and and that's so hard too, Stephanie, like your mom saying, like all of this, all of this thing, you know, I got to go to the Emmys, like, and you got to go there because Harris he couldn't, right? And <laughs> yes. you, you get to watch Eric Wareheim and, and, and love his character, but also know that... Hard. That's... Hard. That was his role. So hard. Yeah, I mean, I... Oh, God. Like my husband on my birthday like got me a cake that just says day because because <laughs> um, like it's truly like in Judaism you light a yard site candle and you light it for 24 hours after the per- you know to honor the person's life in memoriam of them and um, so the yard site candle forever for the rest of my life will burn out on my birthday mm. every time I age a year the candle will say he never can. Like, gosh, it's so <laughs> terrible. Oh my gosh. So I mean, I hate, I hate my birthday. I never want to celebrate it. I told my husband, like, take it off the calendar. I will conti- I will forever be thirty-four. <laughs> <laughs> A couple of weeks after talking with Harris's family. Maureen emailed me during a sleepless night thinking about her son. She told me that there's a recording of him making a phone call from heaven. Now, okay, (laughs) not actually in heaven, it turns out, once I said that out loud. Um, He was, Harris was alive when he recorded it in the past, and it's a recording of Harris pretending to be in heaven. He was most definitely alive when he placed that phone call. This recording was for a podcast that he was on called Comedy Bang Bang, and Maureen thought that would be a great last word for the show, and we agree. Hey, it's Harris 
calling from heaven. Uh, it's pretty great up here. Uh, it's beautiful, for starters. Uh, Hitler's up here, however, for the vegetarianism thing. So, calling bullshit on that. But other than that, it's pretty great. It's, uh, it is very cloudy. Uh, and you, you sit on them. So that's cool. Uh, oh, gotta go. Ice cream buffet. So that's the episode. We originally published that in September of 2017. Recently, though, we called up Steph to check in on how things are going now. I I gotta know. Yeah. Everything that's happened since the last time we we talked. What's new with you? Oh my god. Oh my god. The last time we talked, it, your mom was here. She um, when I explained to her that I was going to host a podcast. She was like, well, why wouldn't I host it? <laughs> I mean, and I was like, did you consider that? Um, I was like, well, I, uh, okay. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know, you know what? Actually, mom, you're right. It's you have the job now. <laughs> a podcast. What? What's that about a podcast? We're, uh, we're making, we're making some podcasts. We're doing some business. So there's, there's a story here. And you are the beginning of That's it. That's why I want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, when, where's the part where I come in to the story? Make this relevant to me by making it about me? Yeah. Um, I don't even have to try that hard because you're at the very beginning of the story. So once I finish your section, I then hope I'll you'll keep out. listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the story starts with Steph and Maureen coming on our show. The episode that you just heard, which I was also in, by the way. Not sure if you noticed that, but I was there. Anyway, that episode comes out, and there's another woman named Jess, whose brother died just a month later. Jess lost her brother in October 2017 to a fentanyl overdose. She saved the podcast episode with me and my mom for her birthday, because that's obviously what you want to do on your birthday. It was Minneapolis in February. It was super cold. Pops in her headphones, goes for a walk, and listens to the show. And the way she explains it is that it's the first time she felt a sensation that felt like joy since her brother died. Because here I was with my mom talking about something that happened to us that had happened to her that was horrific. But we were laughing and we were human and we were able to be on the other side of it. And the way she describes it, it made her understand that she could get there that she could survive this and it made her feel less alone and so she reached out to me and she was asking if I would come on Pod Save the People Pod Save the People is a podcast that Jess produces I have been on it Um, again just bring this back to me it's really great 
So Jess asks Steph to be on Pod Save the People, but... I was one week from giving birth to a human baby who is now alive. His name is Harrison, and he was named after Harris. But she does say, sure, let's talk, and they get on the phone. We talked for so long, and it was one of those conversations where you're like, oh, I know you. There's a connection there. There's some understanding there. And so at the very tail end of the conversation, she throws in, by the way, I'm thinking about doing this podcast about opioids, and are you interested in doing this? And I was like, um, you know, I don't know. I'm opioided out, frankly. Like, I wrote this book about opioids, and uh, I've been talking about it, and I've been thinking about it for, you know, since Harris died, which at that point had been nearly three years. So let's keep in touch, and let's see, you know? That, that's fair. Sometimes you don't want to be just mired in the stuff of your grief all the time. Steph has her baby, and then a couple months later... I read this article that opioids are now killing more people in car accidents, and I literally went to my email, and I was like, okay, let's do this podcast. Everyone is dying. And I felt this need to do it, you know? We figured out that the show would be called Last Day, and it would be trying to humanize these epidemics because what happens is you're so desensitized to them. Those giant numbers are just too hard to understand. Like when when I hear a statistic, 70,000 people died of opioids last year. I can't imagine 70,000 people. I don't know how to wrap my head around. That's a stadium. I know it's a stadium full of people. So last day is zooming in on one person's last day of life and trying to figure out how they got there. So how do you take one human being who have people who love them and friends and jobs and all of that stuff that makes us who we are get to this point where they die of a heroin overdose, you know, at 30 years old. And we retrace their steps. We talk to everyone they came in in contact with on their last day. We try to figure out what was going on with them that day. You know, they're not here to tell us, but we really want to humanize that experience. And once we zoom in on that person's last day, we start zooming out to their immediate family, to people who are left with this question that survivors have when something tragic happens. How did this happen? And then we zoom out even farther. We talk to experts and medical professionals and legal people and policymakers and thought leaders and people who are on the front lines fighting these epidemics. And and at the end of each episode, we say, you know, if you could wave a magic wand and fix any part of this crisis, what would you fix? It's so enlightening and so eye-opening. And part of me feels like, God, I wish I had talked to all these people when my brother was alive mm. because I'm learning so much. And my perspective is changing so much every day with the more people I'm talking to. And the, la- the, 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 the latter part of the story is that Jess and I did start making this podcast. And then once we started making it, we realized that everybody has that thing in their life that makes it hard for them to get out of bed. You know, everyone is struggling with something. And so we thought, okay, there's like lots of more stories to tell. And so we created an entire network called Lemonada Media. And it's about turning lemons into lemonade. So 
there you go. Last day. Formed from the forges of TTFA, but doing its own beautiful thing in the world. If you have any stories that you want to share with Steph and Jess. We would love your story. Yes. And you can do that on our website, LemonadaMedia.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can subscribe to our other two shows. We have two other shows that are coming out in the fall. One is called As Me with Sinead. Sinead Burke is an activist and an educator, and um, and she does a lot of activism in terms of accessibility. And then our last show is called Good Kids, How Not to Raise an Asshole. Uh, thank you for... Um, coming in TTFA with your mom crashing your mother's interview (laughs) anytime and I'm so glad that our sad podcast and your personal tragedies brought two really incredible women together to make something like this so good job us thank you thank you so much it's all go team good job sadness yeah (laughs) team tragedy you did it again (laughs) okay bye bye I'm Nora McNerney. This has been terrible. Thanks for asking. Hans Buto is our senior producer. Marcel Malikibu is our associate producer. Hannah Meacock-Ross is our project manager. Jordan Turgeon. I mean, everything else. New intern, Megan. We like her style. We like her voice. You won't hear it, though. Um, we like her, her little nose ring. We just like her. She's great. She's been here 48 hours. She's really contributed to the team. High hopes. I'd give her an A, but I'm not her college professor yet. You can find me online at noraborealis.com or on Instagram at noraborealis. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson, and we are a production of American Public Media. 